read the holy and inspired word of God tonight from Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to begin our reading in chapter 1 at verse 27, and then we'll read into chapter 2 through verse 11. Word of God in Philippians 1 verse 27, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which ye saw in me, and now here to be in me. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We read the Word of God that far tonight. The text for the sermon is the first four verses of chapter 2. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, Every man also on the things of others. We 
beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ. Word of God to us tonight. The call to examine ourselves with respect to two important areas of the Christian life and life in the Church of Christ. Those are unity and humility. Those two things are significant in the week to come as we examine ourselves prior to coming to the table of our Lord Jesus Christ. We read that part of the Lord's Supper form tonight. There were especially a couple of references there that indicate the importance of examining ourselves with respect to the unity of the church and humility. The Lord's Supper form calls us to put away enmity, hatred, and envy toward our neighbor. It says we are to firmly resolve henceforward to walk in the true love and peace with our neighbor. Then the form goes on to warn those who are walking in sin, in certain sins, to abstain from the table of the Lord. And one of them is this, all those who are given to raise discord sex, and mutiny in church. The Word of God calls us to examine ourselves with respect to the unity of the church. The past years, the Lord has brought us as a denomination of churches through much. He's brought this congregation through difficulty. Through all of that, Is the unity of the church more precious to us? We committed to manifesting and guarding and praying for the unity of the church of Jesus Christ. The Word of God calls us also to examine ourselves with respect to humility. That's a word of God that comes each one of us personally. Are you humble? Am I humble? Is there pride reigns in our hearts whereby we think ourselves to be so much better than the others in the church of Jesus Christ? The word of God that has application to the church at large. Are we a humble congregation? Beyond that, are we a humble denomination of churches? How precious, how important is the unity of the church and how urgent is the calling for each of us to walk in humility. The Word of God tonight sets forth the importance of those two ideas and puts them in right relationship to each other. In the previous chapter, chapter 1 of the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul had set forth for the saints there what was going on in his own life and in his own circumstances. And the Apostle didn't begin there because he was self-centered or selfish, but he's explaining the difficulties that he was going through, knowing that the church of Philippi was concerned about him, 
worried about how he was doing and what that meant for the preaching of the gospel. And so he begins by alleviating their fears and removing their worries about how he's doing. And then from there, he turns to address the situation in the church. And that begins with those last three verses that we read out of chapter 1, where there's a shift now to focusing upon the issues that are going on in the church there. And those three verses in chapter 1 set forth in big picture some of the themes and the issues that are going to be addressed in further detail later on in the epistle. Then in chapter 2, the apostle begins to address some of those specific things. And the very first thing right out of the gate that needs to be addressed is the unity and the humility of the church. The situation in Philippi was not that there was open division amongst the members of the church like the situation was in the church in Corinth. There were subtle, underlying divisions among them. There were members that were not getting along with one another as they ought. There was some bitterness and some bickering that was going on between them that was undermining the unity of the church. And what that exposed was the sinful selfishness and pride that was in their hearts. For that reason then, the apostle urges them to manifest the oneness and the unity of the church and that only as the members are walking in humility before the face of God with one another. The same word of God comes to us tonight, to this congregation. The word of God calls this congregation to manifest the oneness and the unity that we have in Christ. And that by each one of us as members, walking humbly before God, with each other. Consider this word of God tonight under the theme, the church's unity in humility. Let's first consider the joyful unity, secondly the necessary humility, and then thirdly the foundational mercy. The main point of this word of God is the importance of the church's unity. That's indicated in the text in verse 2 with a series of four statements that are made there by the apostle. It says in verse 2 that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. With those four statements, there are two of them that have to do with the church's unity of conviction, the unity of her thinking. That's the first clause there, that ye be like-minded. Literally, that means that you think the same thing. And that's repeated almost in the exact same words in the fourth phrase there at the end of verse 2 of one mind. And literally, that means to think the one thing. Think the same thing. Think the one thing. And the idea there is not that God's people are always at every time to be thinking the exact same thoughts. That would be impossible. 
what it's referring to is the unity of the church's conviction. What the people of God believe and what they think about God and about the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a oneness that we have of conviction in the truth. That verse also addresses the unity of the church from a different point of view. And the other clauses there refer to the church's unity of affection. Or unity in love one for another. The two middle phrases out of the four. says there, secondly, having the same love. The members of the church share in the same love for God and for the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as the common love one for another as members of the church. And then it also says that they're to be of one accord. Literally, the word of God there says that they're to be together in soul. Our English phrase, soulmates, conveys what that phrase is expressing. When we use the word soulmates, it's often used in a very emotional sense in reference to a, a man and a woman who love one another and live their life together. God has prepared one for another and complement one another. The church of Jesus Christ, they're soulmates. There's a togetherness in soul that we have. There's a unity that we share one with another that is unlike any other tie to any other person. Stronger than the, the ties of blood and family is the oneness of soul or being spiritual soulmates who live together in a unity of love. That unity of the church is a present reality. When we made confession of our faith together tonight, we confessed, I believe, the communion of the saints. We made that as a confession that we believe this is a Reality that this belongs to the church on the earth, that she is one. That unity that we do have is grounded in our union to Christ. It begins with our personal union to Christ, so that I, as a child of God, am united to Jesus Christ. I'm in Him. Christ is in me so that I partake of Him and all of His saving benefits. And because every other child of God is also united to Jesus Christ, we're united then one to another. Every individual child of God is united to Jesus Christ. The head then, we're united together as members of His body. Church is one, therefore, in her partaking of Christ. She's one in her enjoying of the blessings of salvation. The members of the church are one in their fundamental identity as forgiven children of God. We share together in one basic struggle, which is the struggle against sin and Satan and this world. 
We have the same hopes, the same goals, the same desires, which is ultimately for the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're one in our confession and conviction regarding the one true God and the only Savior from sin, the Lord Jesus Christ in His shed blood. When you look out across the congregation here, you see so many different individuals. Different backgrounds, different gifts, different circumstances of life, and yet you are one. You're one in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can look at the church of Jesus Christ, Catholic as she's found throughout the whole of the earth. Scattered in different countries with different skin color and different languages and different cultures with very different backgrounds. We believe and confess that we are one, though we don't know of all of the people of God, that we'll never meet them all in this life. We know that we're united to them. There's a, a oneness of soul that we have with them. Unity of the church is a reality wrought by God in His grace. At the same time, the scriptures indicate that we have a calling as members of the church with respect to her unity. That calling is not to initially create the unity. The unity is there in Jesus Christ. Our calling is to manifest it and to guard it. Word of God indicates in Psalm 122 that this is to be a matter of prayer. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. Peace be within thy walls and prosperity within thy palaces. For my brethren and companions' sakes, I will now say, peace be within thee. Not only are we to pray for that, we're to manifest that and to guard that. Ephesians 4 verse 3 says, endeavoring to keep, and the idea there is to guard or to preserve, endeavoring to guard, to preserve, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The importance of the unity of the church and the calling that we have as members to guard that indicates seriousness of the sin of schism. Schism is the sinful tearing apart of the unity of the church of Jesus Christ for sinful motives and sinful reasons to tear apart and to destroy what ought to be one and ought to reflect the oneness of the church. We seek to manifest and to guard the unity of the church in the truth of the gospel. The importance of the unity of the church is not in any way our undermining of the truth of God's word. It's not peace and unity externally at the expense of the truth of the gospel. But the unity that we're called to express is a unity in the Truth of the Word of God, this unity of conviction that the Word of God speaks of, a, a oneness of mind and a oneness of thinking with respect to the, the fundamental truth of the gospel. 
same time, while we seek to manifest the church's unity in the truth, careful to guard that unity by not allowing other matters, not matters of fundamental biblical principle, but matters about which children of God have, may have differences of opinion, to allow that to destroy or undermine the unity of the church. So that I'm always insisting on my own opinion and my own way in the church of Jesus Christ. And if I don't get that, then I'm going to do things that destroy her unity. Keeping the unity of the church means keeping that unity in the truth. And on matters about which there may be differences of opinion, I deal with my brothers and sisters in the church with love, with humility, and with respect. We manifest and we guard the unity of the church not only as a unity of conviction, but as a unity of affection. Unity in which we love one another. The true biblical love whereby we hold up the others, view them as dear and precious and delightful, and are ready to give ourselves for them. The unity that is expressive of our being soulmates. Together in soul, knit together in these spiritual ties, are stronger than any of our earthly ties. Are we committed, members of the Church of Christ, to the Church's unity? As I mentioned in the introduction to the sermon. Lord in his wisdom has brought us through much, much that has the potential to tear God's people apart. Have we learned through that not to take the unity of the church for granted? Are we more concerned for her unity? Are we more convicted to carry out our calling as a member of the church to Pursue and manifest and guard the unity of the church. That unity is a beautiful, a joyful thing. Our text makes the connection between the church's unity and our joy. Stand, verse 2 the Apostle says, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Being united, the church in Philippi fulfills the joy of the Apostle. The Apostle puts it in that way, not because things were so terrible in the church of Philippi, it was not the case. It wasn't the case that they were so torn apart like the church of Corinth was, where they were divided up into all these different fragmented groups. There was much to be commended in the church of Philippi. And the apostle throughout the epistle 
does that and expresses thanksgiving to God for his work among them. But there are subtle and underlying divisions amongst the members. Members who are not getting along with one another as they ought. There's, there's a bitterness between some of them. The apostle in a pastoral way then, doesn't simply say to them, be one. But he says to them, fulfill my joy by being like-minded of one accord of the same mind. The idea there is that uh, members of the church are living together as they are in unity, that that fills up the cup of the apostles' joy to the brim. There's nothing more joyful to him than to know and to hear of the unity of that church. The scriptures indicate with those words the importance and the preciousness and the joyful nature of the church's unity. We ought never to think that the unity of the church is some matter of such insignificance, matter of secondary importance, so that it's not something that we really have to be concerned about, not something that we have to make a matter of priority. The Word of God shows here that's not at all the case. The unity of the church is an important matter, a matter that's very precious, a matter that's significant for the spiritual health and the well-being of the church of Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself expresses the importance of the unity of the church on earth what he says in his high priestly prayer, John 17, verses 21 and following, Jesus prays that they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. The unity of the church is a matter of great joy for the office bearers like the Apostle Paul. There are few things that give more joy to pastors and to elders than to see the members of the church dwelling together in unity. And there's nothing more difficult and more sorrowful to them than to have the church torn apart and the members at odds one with another. And that is the case that saps the church of her strength as she exerts herself to try and hold the, the church together. And where that is the case, the office bearers have joy. It fills up their cup of joy to the brim. And the church then is able to be busy in carrying out the work that Christ has given her to do in building up the saints and preaching the gospel to the ends of the earth. Fulfilled. Joy of your office bearers. 
being like-minded, the same love, of one accord, thinking the same thing. That's not just true of office bearers, that's true for all of us as members of the church. Painful thing as members of the church of Jesus Christ when there's not unity. There's friction, when there's tension in the church of Jesus Christ. It's a matter that saps us as, as members of the church of our joy in the church of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that quite fills up the cup of our joy as members of the church than to dwell together in sweet communion. Unity of the church is known, enjoyed, and expressed where all of the members of the church strive by the grace of God to walk in humility. Where that's not the case, where there's pride and where there's selfishness, it's there that the unity of the church is undermined. The Word of God indicates that here. Verse 3, at the beginning it warns, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. The word for strife literally means at first selfish ambition. Referring to one that's selfish, that's self-centered, that's self-seeking and self-interested. One whose interest is in self, in my own way, in getting my own wants and my own needs. And then from there, that word can also convey the idea of sinful competition and rivalry. And that's why our translation rightly translates as strife. Because one in whose heart lives this selfish ambition, this self-centered attitude, looks around at the church of Jesus Christ and assumes that, well, that's what lives in everyone else's heart. Everyone's here to, to get their own. I'm going to be sure that I come out ahead. I'm going to come out on top. So that life in the church of Jesus Christ is a rivalry. It's a, it's a competition. Who can get their way? Who can come out ahead? Which leads to all kinds of strife and hurt and division in the church. And then the word of God warns in verse 3 against vain glory. We can summarize what that word is conveying as pride. It's one filled with an empty, conceited view of self. One who's proud elevates himself on account of his supposed gifts, or background, or achievements. And elevates oneself in relationship to others. That I'm in a higher status than others in the church of Jesus Christ. We look down upon them. We minimize them. We easily criticize them. And that arising out of a spirit of pride that lifts myself up. And as others are put down, that only in my own mind serves to elevate me. 
Word of God mentions these two sins, strife and vainglory, selfishness and pride, side by side, because in many respects they are sister sins. They go together. They're so often found together. They're they're intermingled one with another. One who's proud is selfish. One who's selfish is proud. And though the Apostle Paul doesn't come out directly and say this by warning against these sins, it's clear these were issues in the lives of the members there. The reason for the the disunity and the tension that was found in the church was that the members were proud and were selfish. And so the Word of God exhorts them, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Let absolutely nothing in the church of Jesus Christ and in relation one to another be done through selfishness and pride. warning of God's Word needs to be heard by us. Not because each one of us sinful nature that's prone to selfishness and pride. There lives in my soul as a child of God sinful nature selfish Self-centered and self-seeking and self-important. So that reflected in my life are times and sins where I put myself first. And life is about me and getting what I want and what I think I need. It's about my own happiness or my own comfort or my own sense of security. That then, an occasion for strife, for rivalry, for sinful competition where here I am seeking my own and and that means that in relation to others then I'm trying to get ahead, trying to get my way, trying to come out on top. And life in the home or life in the church of Jesus Christ then becomes a, a competition for who can get their way. Lives in me a sinful nature, vain, glorious, that's proud. So prone to lift myself up, being so much better than others. Proud spirit that thinks I am worthy, I am deserving of others' praise. Acclamation and a lifting of me up, sinful pride in me that thinks I am above criticism, I'm above correction, a sinful spirit that's never ready to acknowledge I am wrong, I'm at fault, I sinned. A sinful spirit of pride that's never willing to acknowledge I need help, I need others in the body of Christ. And that sinful pride shows itself not only in my own personal life, but then in relationship to others. So that I lift myself up in putting others down. I think myself to be a bit better than they are. 
for whatever reason, something in my life or something in my home and family or, or my background or my achievements. My pride. See all of the faults and all of the sins and failures and, and everyone else's life. And I'm very quick to point that out and to criticize. Often, these sins found in our hearts. How often aren't we proud, selfish? Our marriages, relations with our families, our children, our parents. In the body of Christ, in the church, in our relation to brothers and sisters. We need to hear the warning of the Word of God. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. There is no room for these sins in the body of Jesus Christ, these sins are so repugnant, they're so heinous, they're so contrary to the gospel of grace, they do not belong in the church of Christ. Let nothing in your personal life be done through strife or vainglory, let nothing be done in your home, in your marriage, in your family through pride and selfishness, let nothing be done in the life of this church. Selfishness and pride. These sins are so destructive to the precious unity and peace of the church of Christ. While the word of God warns against those sins, it sets before us also positively what is our calling in relation to one another? Verse 3 says, But in lowliness of mind. That's true humility. Amongst the Greeks and the Romans, amongst whom God's people lived at that time, humility was not considered to be a virtue, it was considered to be a weakness. As God's people, we know that meekness is not weakness. Meekness and humility is a, a blessed virtue and a gift of God. True humility is the believer's acknowledgement of his own lowliness. It's our acknowledgement of who I am as I stand in relation to God. God is holy, and God is great, and God is glorious. And I am small and weak, a creature of, of dust and a sinner. True humility is born out of a right knowledge of my own sin and sinfulness. So that what I see, first of all, is not all the sins and the shortcomings of everyone else in the church of Jesus Christ. I have enough to see my own sin. Acknowledge without pretense and not as a show. I am the chief of sinners. 
That lowliness and that humility is further described in the text. In verse 3, it says, Let each esteem other better than themselves. Danger is selfishness, selfish ambition and strife. Positively, the calling is that we esteem others better than ourselves. So that when we look around the church of Jesus Christ, there's not a one whom we think to be below us. But we truly view others better than ourselves. That's humility. And then, going on into verse 4, the Word of God in describing humility says, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Contrary to the pride and the selfishness to which we're prone, the Word of God exhorts us to put the needs of others before ourselves. The Word of God in verse 4 there, when it uses the word also, indicates that there's a right way in which we can speak of caring for our own needs. We have responsibilities in our own life and our own family. And the Word of God's not saying we have to totally ignore them. What the Word of God is warning against is putting self before others. And true humility shows itself in being willing to give of myself, to sacrifice my own wants, my own desires, Seek the needs and the well-being of others. So insistent in the church on my own way. Not insistent on my own opinion carrying the day. Ready to seek first the needs and the well-being of the church of Christ as a whole and the other members of her. This is how you live in the church of Christ. Be lowly of mind. Truly humble. Do you esteem others better than yourself? Truly. You look around the church of Jesus Christ and say, I esteem all of them, all of them, better than myself. Are you ready to seek, not your own things, but the things of others, their needs, their well-being? is the nature of life in the church of Jesus Christ, what it ought to be. This is our calling before God in relation to one another, striving by the grace of God to put off and to flee from all pride and selfishness, to be lowly of mind, to esteem others better than self, to seek not ourselves and our own things, but Things of others. Why is it that God gives us that calling? And what is it that 
motivates me and makes me ruddy and eager to do that. The explanation, of course, is the truth of the gospel. The Word of God is not a lesson in good morals in the church of Christ and dearly how we're to treat one another. This is the gospel. And the callings that we have one to another are grounded in the Word of God here in the gospel. That's verse 1. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies. The Spirit uses four if clauses then. And at times in the Scriptures where that language is used, if this, then this, the if clause can convey something that's in question, something that's unsure, something that's in doubt. But that's not the case here. Verse 1 is not expressing that all of these things are a matter of doubt and uncertainty, but the Word of God is expressing by that language that this is, in fact, a certainty. And the text could be rightly understood and translated this way. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, and there is, if any comfort of love, and there is, if any fellowship of the Spirit, and there is, if any bowels and mercies, and there is, then this is what follows. First, the Word of God says there, if there be any consolation in Christ. The inspired Apostle Paul when he describes the fundamental identity of a Christian, again and again refers to the Christian as in Christ. That language of in Christ is found all throughout the New Testament. This is our fundamental identity. This is what summarizes the truth of our salvation. We are in Christ. And if we're in Christ, there's consolation, there's comfort, there's help, there's encouragement in our belonging to Christ. Secondly, the text says, if any comfort of love, and the love there is the love of God and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. We are the objects of God's love. He looks down upon us and views us in love, which means that to Him we are dear, we're precious, we're delightful to Him. And in His love for us, He gave. He gave what's most dear and most precious to us, His only begotten Son, to suffer and to die to redeem us. He loves us. In the love of God and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, There's comfort, solace, there's peace, really the only peace, is in the comfort and the confidence of God's love for us. Third, the Word of God says, if any fellowship of the Spirit. Fellowship there is fellowship and communion with God. The truth of the covenant. We are the friends 
of God, with the objects of his love, his dear and precious children and friends. And that fellowship is a fellowship, as we considered this morning, that's wrought by the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ, we're brought into the fellowship and the communion of life with God. Then fourth, and this fourth one really sums up the first three, if any, bowels and mercies. The word bowels refers to one's gut, one's internal organs, as the seat and the source of one's emotions. And the text refers to mercies, and mercies refers to compassion, to pity, to sympathy upon one who's suffering. These bowels that are full of mercies, God's own bowels. We may speak in a holy way, God's bowels, God's gut, God's inner organs are filled with mercies for us. He's a God of compassion, a God of pity, a God who has sympathy and mercy upon us as we are sunk down in the awful misery of our sins. Notice from those four, with the fourth summarizing the early three, a Trinitarian model there. There's the Son, there's the Spirit, there's the Father. And the language there is very similar to the Word of God in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, which speaks of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost. The inspired Apostle sets this forth as the foundation for the life that the saints in Philippi were to live together. Consolation in Christ. And there's comfort in the love of God. And there's fellowship in the Holy Spirit. And you know the bowels and the mercies of God toward you. Therefore, this is how you're to live. Knowing that all of this is true. Knowing the precious truth of the gospel. And who you are in Christ. And what you have in the God the Father and in the Spirit. Live this way. Motivated by love and motivated by gratitude. Pursue the unity of the church and walk in humility one with another. That is foundational for our life together in the church as well. It all has its source in and is grounded in the truth of the gospel of our salvation. We know together as fellow believers, consolation in Christ. We know together the comfort of the love of God the Father. We know fellowship in the Holy Spirit. We know the the bowels and the mercies of God toward us. If we share together in all of these wonderful blessings, Then we're ready and eager to manifest that unity.
How can we not live together in peace and harmony, one with another, knowing that for myself and for all the other children of God, we have such great blessings. And it's that truth of the gospel that shapes how I view the church and the other members of the church. With the view of the gospel that I look at the other members of the church. And my view of them is not the critical view seeking to to find out all their faults and all their failures and all their shortcomings. But I view the other members of the church in Christ and loved by the Father and indwelt by the Spirit and the objects of the bowels and the, the mercies of God. And if God loves all of these other believers, how can I not? God loves them. Jesus Christ gave Himself for them. How can I not then love These who are loved by God. The gospel shapes my life in the church because it shapes my view of myself. Because the truth of the gospel when understood and truly believed can only ever humble. This in Christ the object of God's love indwelt by the Spirit the object of the bowels and the mercies of God this sinner how can it be? I walk in pride. I walk in selfishness in the church of Jesus Christ. It means I've lost sight of the gospel. Lost sight of all that God in His grace and mercy has done for me. When I know the gospel and believe the gospel, it can only have this effect. I walk in low of mind, esteeming others better than myself and seeking not my own but the things of others. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know consolation in Christ. You know the comfort of the love of God. You know the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. You know bowels and mercies. Therefore, manifest the unity of the church. Walk in humility before God with one another. Amen. Let us pray. Father who art in heaven, the truth of the gospel is so dear and so precious to our souls. 
nothing that gives greater joy. There's no peace. The peace we know in belonging to Christ and being the objects of thy love. We're staggered. Stand in such awe and amazement that thou wouldst save such a sinner as we are. We rejoice and we give thee thanks. Pray that thou wilt so impress that truth of the gospel upon our hearts that we crucify our old nature of pride and selfishness and are strengthened by thy spirit to walk in humility. Prepare us, Father, in the week to come to partake of the Lord's Supper and receive us there in mercy for Christ's sake. Edify our souls as we feed on him. In his name alone do we pray. Amen.